Hello, and a warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. I'm Thomas Pearson from Africa Legal, and today I'll be discussing the extremely topical issue of environmental and social governance with two experts in this field, Jennifer Kammerman and Stephen Shergold. Jennifer holds an LLM in environmental law from the University of Cape Town and has over 17 years of experience in the corporate retail sector. She is an internationally accredited mediator and is a leading advocate for African businesses to fully incorporate sustainability into business practice and the pursuit of competitive edge. She was recently the course presenter for the extremely well-received online course, Public Participation for Environmental Governance, hosted by the University of Cape Town's Law at Work programme. And Stephen is a partner at global law firm Denton's, Based in London, he leads the Environmental and Societal Practice Group. Legal directories recognise Stephen as a band one leader in his field, and his practice has a heavy focus on Africa. Over the last 12 months, Stephen has conducted ESG due diligence in South Africa, Mozambique, Ghana, Uganda, and Algeria. From 2014 to 2018, Stephen was executive chairperson of Denton's Africa region. So intros aside, welcome to the podcast, Jennifer and Stephen. Thank you, Thomas. Hi, Tom. Great. Well, look, as I've said, we're talking about an extremely topical issue, that of environmental and social governance. And so, Stephen, let's deal with the COVID-shaped elephant in the room, shall we? Is ESG already or going to be one of the first policy victims of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, Tom, I I guess... You know, ESG to one side, everybody's trying to look down um, the lens at what the post-COVID world is going to look like. And, um, you know, I think one thing that we know for sure right now in in, in, the, in this stage of the crisis um, and, you know, med- many countries still on the containment of what might only be a first wave, it's pretty difficult to predict uh, the post-COVID business world. Um, that said, um, I, I would say that, Far from um, already being a policy victim, I would see already a strengthening of the ESG agenda um, in the responses that we're seeing to COVID. Um, I think it's important to to recognise that when you uh, pull apart the E and the S, the E for environmental, the S for for social or or societal issues, um, it's really been the, the E element of ESG that's been driving through 2019, pretty much led by um, uh, countries uh, identifying and designating there being a climate emergency um, and the climate change agenda really catching on globally so that um, we, we've really seen that emphasis on the environmental. And indeed, you know, towards the back end of 2019, many people were saying, well, what about the S? You know, social performance is sort of lagging behind. Now, you know, from an African perspective, of course, um, especially with the extractive industries, social license and social performance has always been um, paramount in in operators' minds. But the broader application of that S um, into stakeholders, including um, employees and and workforces across sectors, uh, has been something that, Really, it's been COVID that that has um, brought into um, the spotlight. And right now, as many countries start to look at restarting operations, 
bringing the, that those employees back to work in in situations where um, you know the, the the health risks are paramount. We really see that social element of ESG coming to the fore for boards for for executives as they start to plan the way out of of COVID and and you know recommencing operations. So I would say that where we are right now in in the COVID crisis is that um, you know many people are are seeing the the bedding down of ESG, um, and I, I would suggest that we will see an accelerated uptake of ESG once we come out the back end of, of COVID. Fantastic insight there, Stephen. Thanks, thanks very much. There's uh, there's nothing like a global pandemic to uh, very much put the S back into ESG. Um, some would say it's a real shame it's taken something of this significance to really drive forward, but it'll be very interesting, as you say, to see how companies continue uh, with their own ESG policies. Now, now, Jennifer, a, a question for you. Um, proper ESG incorporates a great number of stakeholders, internal and external to a given company. Where are the biggest gaps currently in proper engagement with, with all relevant uh, parties you know is it the public is it the communities is it you know all levels of uh, of the employee strata thanks thomas you raise such a critical question the notion of stakeholders the whom in this critical aspect of public participation is often overlooked or diminished in the process of environmental governance. And I would say that it is the starting point for a meaningful public participation process. If you don't get the evaluation of who your stakeholders are, you are never going to be able to achieve the meaningful public participation process that you may intend. It's a broad church. Defining the whom uh, would beg the question of what do you want to achieve in a public participation process? And when I use the words public participation process, I mean that in the broadest sense possible. It could be the engagement you may have internally within your organization. It could also mean both the internal and the external engagement, or it could mean just the external. And external could be your citizens, but it could equally apply to the your supply base, your value chain as an organization. What are your communication processes going to be with that particular group? For for the most part, and particularly true for environmental impact assessment processes around large developments, so development that's going to happen in the future. This is the aspect which is most contentious. My advice that I give to corporates uh, is that if they are genuine in their intention to collaborate fully with interested and affected stakeholders, then surely the inclusion of those stakeholders should begin when the idea moves 
onto the planning table. Now, that's not an impossible thought. This is not about blue sky. This is doable, and there are examples worldwide of organizations that are doing just this. So collaborating right from the beginning, instead of having a predetermined outcome and then fitting the public participation to that outcome. And whilst most environmental government uh, regulatory regimes do provide some kind of framework for how to identify the whom, they also deliberately, I think, allow for tailoring. And that's absolutely critical in identifying who your stakeholders are. And that is that a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to get you there. And that's often the default position of organizations or particularly their agents. And in this case, uh, let's talk about environmental assessment practitioners uh, who invariably implement the process. Um, often, for whatever is on the agenda as the outcome, will adopt a singular approach and apply it to a stakeholder interface irrespective of what the unique circumstances and characteristics of the affected communities may be. The other thing that I always encourage is that the process must be seen, the process of public participation and engagement must be seen as a journey. And it really should as I said, start at the beginning of the plan, but also see the project through its life cycle. And this in turn will mean that those stakeholder groups may change during that process, which often takes place over many, many years. And, and it will depend on the relevancy of the project and the potential for impact of the project on the particular stakeholder group. Now, I live in a country with an enormous amount of diversity uh, in terms of cultural diversity, language diversity, education, economic diversity. And so selection of stakeholders is perhaps something of a, a greater challenge in, in Africa uh, because of the degree of diversity. You leave out a group or sections of a group at your peril. It's absolutely critical that the wider you go, the more opportunity there is from the beginning to ensure common purpose and consensus building. And equally importantly, uh, through collaborative effort to create solutions to problems that are often apparently insurmountable. The value of including a wide span of stakeholders cannot be overemphasized. I know that the motivation to exclude can often be because of the upfront notion of time and cost. But just ask any 
corporate who's experienced tensions in the community around a project that often escalate into full-blown and destructive protests further down the line, if they would rather have done it correctly right from the start? And the answer will be an unequivocal yes. So selection of stakeholder group is if not the most critical component, certainly the most critical component in the starting of the public participation process. Thank you, Jennifer. Those are fantastic insights. Now, now, if I may uh, hit you with a, a follow-up question here, I absolutely agree with the need for engagement with uh, as many stakeholder and relevant stakeholder groups as possible over the lifetime of projects you know with with the cookie cutter approach the cost and time before results approach but what are some of the practical ways you've seen corporates embark on this very valid approach but ensuring that this isn't entirely open-ended when it comes to results you know, how to ensure that, yes, the year is always open, but also tangible outcomes and tangible information is provided to allow them to make the decisions they need to in good time. Yes, the issue of how open-ended do you make the selection uh, is is a tough call. If the development proposer starts with the correct level of resources right at the beginning. And by the correct level of resources, I'm referring specifically to engaging skilled mediators, engaging skilled uh, uh, people in the community who speak the language understand the cultural dynamics, not guessing who those people are going to be. If you do that at contemporaneously with the beginnings of the bedding down of the plan of the development, you're likely to include at least most representatives from the affected community. That's been my experience. Fantastic. Thank you, Jennifer. Now, now, Stephen, public perception is often that ESG is a tick box exercise conducted by corporates to gain better investor traction. Now, is this true? And if not, what are the more human sides of, of ESG? Well, Tom, the, the reality is, of course, that it can be true. Um, and, uh, you know, you will see you know, many allegations of, of greenwashing um, in, in relation to uh, a corporate's performance. And, you know, we've seen that historically, you know, when um, uh, uh, companies were more focused on, you know, what they would have called corporate social responsibility. But even now where ESG is is part of the purpose of, of businesses. So, you know, we've moved, I think, from um, that concept of corporate social responsibility into an era where 
um, directors uh, have uh, more than one objective. Um, they, they, they are, yes, they're focused on optimizing shareholder profits, but when the purpose of a business um, also includes environmental and social um, elements, then you know that balances uh, those those duties on directors. And so, even in this era, we will still see evidence of that tick box. Now, I, I would say that firstly, um, we are starting to see legal regimes um, with extraterritorial reach that are starting to hold. Um, or will hold companies to account to make sure that they are actually putting into practice um, the, the the standards and the procedures that, that they lay out. Um, and um, secondly, I think there are indicators that you can follow, and of course, that's particularly the case where you'd be doing due diligence on a on a target to find out whether their commitments were real or, or indeed, um, uh, you know, were happening in practice. So, just in terms of the the, the legal reach, you know, you're at the moment the EU is um, uh, consulting on bringing forward a new law um, that will require any EU domiciled company um, to implement uh, ESG standards through their supply chain. You know, that, that looks rather similar to, but will probably be more far reaching than the French duty of vigilance that already has um, a degree of oversight on the operations of French companies globally. Um, so th- th- there is that extraterritorial reach of legislation, but we also see it in the law of negligence. Uh, companies have been held to account um, in the Netherlands um, and in English courts. So, um, you know, for example, there have been cases against uh, corporates active in Africa um, whose parent company uh, is domiciled in the United Kingdom who have made statements about environmental and social performance that um, then have not been implemented on the ground. Uh, the, the Most recently, the courts in England have recognised the assumption of a duty of care on that parent company and therefore uh, given access to those courts by claimants who have suffered harm um, as the result of the subsidiary um, acting abroad. So, you know, that, that re- will deter companies from a tick box approach. But I think if you're looking for the indicators, you know, it's quite easy for companies to say we follow the UN Sustainable Development Goals um, and, and making statements about their intent. But what ESG really does is it enables companies to quantify those objectives, uh, to measure them and to report on them. So I think if you're interested to know and to differentiate between companies to see which ones are actually implementing an ESG agenda, then look at their um, public statements, look at their annual reports and, and ask yourself, are they actually measuring what they do and reporting on those statistics? Um, because ESG enables them, therefore, to articulate uh, their um, performance in line with those UN Sustainable Development Goals. Now, Stephen, the measuring and the reporting side of things was certainly uh, front of mind and and centre of the discussions at the uh, General Council Forum, uh, which was hosted by Africa Legal and Hive Group at the uh, Investing in African Mining in Daba, of which you were one of our fantastic panel moderators. Now, there were a few examples that came out of that event of the 
practical steps that that companies specifically in the mining sector had taken in relation to to ESG uh, are there any you know companies or organizations or even african countries that you'll choose to highlight who are really leading the charge on ensuring robust participation with 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 ESG mm. Yeah, it's uh, you're right, actually, Tom, to refer back to that because um, you know I think that the extractive sector is always one that uh, you know comes in for some criticism um, uh, around the areas of, of ESG, but there are real leaders in that field, um, and indeed, I think that probably uh, underlies a broader concept here, which is that ESG is really quite agnostic when it comes to uh, business sectors. It, you know, it, it applies um, to all businesses um, relatively. And, and so uh, if you think about um, the tourism industry in Africa, if you think about um, the manufacturing industry, if you think about the finance industry or the food and beverage industry, you know, there are, um, there are companies in each of those sectors who uh, are going you know much further in in implementing that ESG um, performance um, standard you know and so you know companies such as Unilever jump out at me or Danone Total City um, you know when you think about the banking sector um, the uh, Mauritian Commercial Bank for example and all those flows of funding through Mauritius into um, in, into the broader continent, you know that that's an institution that is very focused on on ESG. So you'll find these, um, I think these these leaders um, in, in any particular business sector. Um, but more broadly, funny enough, the nature of ESG is that it isn't being led so much by governments and by countries. This is um, really a uh, if you like a corporate-led initiative, it goes to the heart of the purpose of those corporations. And so, maybe rather than countries that are leading the way, um, it's uh, the the finance community and those multilateral funders, um, such as the IFC. And if you think right back to IFC performance standards, you know you can see the um, you know the, the the nascent elements of ESG that have developed uh, over the years. And so. You know, right now, if you're looking at various countries across Africa, business sectors, projects, um, that those that are IFC backed uh, will will most likely give you, um, you know, the the deepest flavour of those performance standards at this point in time. And a final question to you, Jennifer, if I may. What pitfalls or on the flip side opportunities should companies and individuals be aware of in relation to progressing and developing ESG during these particularly strange times? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, I think the pitfalls and the opportunities are uh, interlinked, uh, so I'll deal with them interchangeably. Uh, something just following on from something that Stephen said, you know, I'm under no illusion that the majority of senior executives of top performing companies certainly recognize that 
environmental and social government policies uh, are, are linked to business risk, to value creation, to financial performance, and uh, to sustainable growth. But And nevertheless, albeit that there is certainly wider disclosure of ESG performance, uh, and Stephen alluded to this, and more rigorous uh, ESG audits, uh, there's improved metrics for assessing sustainability performance, and of course, increasing pressure from investors. To my mind, and in my experience, there is still a fairly widespread disjunction uh, between the stated aspiration of sustainable business practices and the demonstrable action required in support thereof. And I think that's possibly at the heart of this is that sustainable or sustainability um, has often been approached and is still being approached as a project or a series of projects, if you like, as add-ons, rather than a total immersion in the tenets of sustainability because that requires a fundamental shift from high consumption business model to one that demands uh, conservation and replenishment. And I think it's in that tension that has caused um, businesses to perhaps attract a degree of cynicism regarding ESG. But certainly, if business leaders who have such a critical role to play in making the long leap between aspiration and action, if they can genuinely show sincerity and transparency, increased disclosure, definitely, uh, accountability, and ensure that this has a trickle-down effect. And I don't just mean within their organizations or with their supply chain, but in collaborative effort with communities in which they operate their businesses. I think in addition to that, um, the Sustainable outcomes and environmental threats are elusive concepts. And coming to grips with that is going to require sustainability to become a priority focus for all aspects of business, not just process or strategy, but also for people. Uh, in addition to that, um, there is a worrying rise in the uh, in slap suits. Um, slap suit being um, a strategic uh, litigation against public participation. It's a backlash, if you like, by powerful corporate using their extensive resources to block any form of opposition. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see, and we're seeing early signs of uh, encouraging signs from uh, our courts regarding these slap suits. It's going to be interesting to see where that evolves over time. Uh, 
So within that, of course, there are a legion of opportunities for those corporates who are uh, prepared to be flexible, agile, and adaptive uh, with the uh, these uncertain times. Harnessing social capital has to be a major opportunity that is suboptimally realized at the moment. Uh, likewise, um, the move towards e-participation, you know, harnessing web-based information and communication platforms, not simply for uh, the linear marketing approach, but to engage fully with citizens to allow them to fully participate uh, in solution building around uh, environmental issues. Uh, and beyond that, uh, also harnessing uh, the potential for civil science uh, or co-intelligence uh, uh, to see improved efficiencies and management processes as a collaborative effort. Um, and will also increase transparency automatically uh, in that process. So harnessing the good of the digital age um, in responding in a meaningful, transparent way to ESG, I think is a, a wonderful opportunity uh, at the moment for, for uh, corporates. Truly fascinating insight, Jennifer. And it, it really does seem to me that the, the march of ESG continues and, and really positive changes when it comes to genuine engagement, interaction, and encouragement of participation from the, the key stakeholders, um, the corporates, the communities, the governments who's, uh, who are in a position to, to really drive this forward. Truly seismic changes and seismic opportunities that, that come with it. So I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me today on, on this podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Tom. This has been a, a wonderful opportunity to come from different points of view and to share. An absolute pleasure. And of course, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. Now, if you would like to suggest any topics or guests for us to feature on the Africa Legal Podcast, please do reach out to us through our social media channels. That's Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Uh, all of the details can be found on our website. All do pop us an email. Now, without further ado, I have been Thomas Pearson, and this has been the Africa Legal Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>